people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining once again is Mr. Chris Tashu. Uh, I prefer to be known on this episode as the token Ukrainian. Also back in the booth is Mr. Ryan Luis Rodriguez. I am not Ukrainian. When Chris is on the Sopranos podcast, he's like, well, as an Italian. And then when he's on this, it'd be like, well, as an Ukrainian. So that's it in terms of being able to claim cultural anything. And to be fair, the Italianness is more. It's just I don't have an Italian last name. I have a clearly very Eastern European last name. So that's the one and only. Oh, it's your what's your last name? Stashu. What are you? Mostly Italian. I can only claim half Costa Rican. And even then people go, so do you speak Spanish? And I go, no. I speak Costa Rican. It's very, it sounds very similar to English. Hopefully you can understand this. I learned how to say this phonetically. I just got to do is roll my R's more. Chris, since you are partially um, Ukrainian, I'm hoping you will help out with all of the pronunciation of names on this episode. I'll do my best. I thought about saying something in the opening in Ukrainian, but I felt like that would be a little too on the nose. On this very special episode, we are looking at Conscience. It is a film also known as Sovist from 1968, directed by Vladimir Denisenko. The film is set in a small village during the German occupation of the Ukraine. When one of the German officers is slain, his fellow soldiers demand that the partisan responsible be turned over, lest the entire village be wiped off the earth. The film was banned and didn't see the light of day until the post-perestroika thaw. We are going to be spoiling this movie, um, I think. So just be warned about that. If you haven't seen it, you can go check it out on Classic-y. It is available on that channel. We'll talk a little bit more about that later with our interview guest. But yeah, so I'm taking it that this was a first-time watch for both of you guys. So Chris, what did you think of Conscience? I mean, this movie's subject material is interesting for me personally. My dad's dad was Ukrainian, came from Ukraine, rode on the back of Nazi tanks to escape the Russians during World War II, lived in a displaced persons camp. So all of this stuff, not saying I've heard about, but my grandfather didn't talk a lot about it for a multitude of reasons. We, I remember one time we tried to watch Enemy at the Gates and he refused for a number of reasons. Again, I think it's just obviously none of us have grown up in any sort of similar setting. So to understand what any of this is like is to say, well, I, I understood because you told me it's like, no, 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 you heard what I said, but you didn't live it. And so getting to see this movie, it's interesting because obviously set in Ukraine, German occupation, the Nazis doing what the Nazis do, just, you know, fatalism on display for everyone to see. I mean, Ryan kind of mentioned it before we started talking, like, what an upper of a movie. This movie is brutal. It was banned for an obvious reason, because it is so specifically its own thing. It has no interest in being anything else. And not only is it its own thing, decides to do the thing that movies like this do, which is 
end in such a horrific way. The message is made clear as to the director's intent. And I can't say I enjoyed it because I don't know what that would look like to enjoy a movie like this for a number of reasons. But I understand, at least I can begin to understand, and I'm curious where y'all come from, the importance of it, again, and, and why it's important and who it's important to. But also, I think right now, given what the world is dealing with in terms of Russia invading Ukraine unjustly and and taking it upon themselves to claim that they're again I'm sure there are Nazis in Ukraine but not all Ukrainians are Nazis for fuck's sake so it's interesting to see a movie about Ukrainians and Nazis not coexisting obviously because of course they weren't going to fucking coexist so I found it to be interesting if not not uplifting but just a, a reassurance of the the spectrum of which the human condition you can exist on because again I don't live in a wartime country, and many people in Ukraine 10 years ago probably didn't think they were going to either, but now in 2023, that's where we are. So long answer to a short question. Intrigued, but not at all something I would be like, hey, everybody, go check it, check it out. Go watch it. It's for a specific kind of person who wants a specific kind of thing, and I'm excited to see what you guys thought. Well, speaking of, Ryan, what did you think? Before seeing this, I've had experience not with Ukrainian cinema, but with Soviet cinema. But that kind of begins and ends with Tarkovsky. Like that was that was my gateway drug. That's what got me into kind of world cinema at large. And I've been even I've been diving into the the world cinema project uh, Blu-rays that Marty Scorsese's been putting out with Criterion. Oh, Marty, you're close yeah. friends with him. Yeah, we're, okay. we're, we're buds. Good. Yeah, we're buds. All right, I'll have to ask you for his number sometime. This was such an eye-opener for me. It brute, it destroyed me. Watching this movie absolutely destroyed me. And it's the kind of destruction that I welcome because it brings with you a fresh perspective. And my knowledge of the Ukraine is as limited as pretty much any other American, if not less. So to see this culture, especially at a time when they're being suppressed, like the fact that nobody saw this movie for 20 years really says a lot. And the fact that we really haven't changed in that suppression in all this time. And so, yeah, this movie fucking gutted me. Absolutely gutted me. The story is interesting. The story is pretty simple. I mentioned, you know, this is what happened, and that's pretty much what happens. There's a lot of little things that go on in between, but that's really the thrust of the narrative is this whole idea of somebody shoots this German guy. Hey, we need to get revenge. I want you to turn over this person. I mean, it's kind of a typical narrative. We've we've seen this stuff before. Somebody's hiding this prisoner or somebody's hiding this assassin. We need him out here now, but the way that it is shot, the way it's presented is such an interesting way of doing it. This is part of the Ukrainian poetic cinema movement. I believe is a lot of people call this, and I can really see the poetry of this, the slowness of things, things like, you know, closing a door will take quite a few seconds or you get, uh, and I'm not going to try to pronounce some of the actresses names or actors names or character names, even because they're really just standards. You know, you've got the German officer, you've got the woman translator, you've got, you know, the two killers, you know, like that's what we have going on here. So when you've got 
you know, the woman translator and she's standing there translating what the German has said to her. And all of these guys are just standing there in front of this white wall. And you get these shots often. It's almost like a tableau of these people just being on this stage inside of this German commando house type of thing. And in the way that the whites are kind of blown out, that some scenes that are outside are almost difficult to to see what's exactly going on. I mean, it's not as overexposed and treated like uh, it's a horror movie. We even covered it on the, the show. Anyway, it's not like it's pixel vision or something like that where it's super extreme. But these shots are very overblown. And I think it's a very effective way of presenting this story because not only do you have the visuals, but then you have the audio where you've got like freaking Penderecki on soundtrack. So you've got all of this very emotional music going on, which just adds even more to this pretty fraught story. And to piggyback on the on the cinematography, with the inky blacks and the contrast, it's practically expressionist. And with the blown out whites that you mentioned, it kind of often makes the picture look like a sonogram. So it looks like this transmission, which really adds to the the palpable reality of what you're watching. It does not feel insincere for a single second. And the fact that it does all of this in 76 minutes is just remarkable. I mean, the matter of factness with which it's presented is almost documentary-like. I mean, again, like you're... Not saying that this didn't happen specifically, but I mean, this is a movie, but the way it's presented is so realistic that sure. I mean, this is what would have happened. This is what did happen other than really washing it out. It's just very matter of fact. I mean, the moment that they show the sky and it's just stark white constantly, it's just. It's like it's like they're in another planet, frankly, Uh, you know, and again, it's just like you're seeing this story being told and there's nothing that can save them. There's nothing that they can that can help them. The outside world is closed off and you have to figure out a way to deal with this problem. And the, the way that it's dealt with is pretty awful. I mean, it asks the big question, right? Like, what are you willing to do for the people in your community? And what are the repercussions look like? Should you make a decision that I don't know? I don't know how I would respond in this situation, but again, it's that's one of the things that this movie makes you do is puts you in the position almost directly and asks you, what would you do in this situation? And that that carries over to the dialogue because the German is not subtitled. Yeah, it gives a sense of menace and incomprehension. It literally puts us in the shoes of the villagers. Like there's a line that is, I want to quote, what are you saying? I don't understand. And that is basically the thesis statement of the film. These are two groups of people that will never see eye to eye because one is oppressing the other. And no matter how hard the oppressed try to understand what their plight is, they will never get a satisfactory answer. The name of the movie I was trying to think of earlier is Begotten, the um, E. Elias Marenghi film, which is like extremely blown out as far as the whites and the blacks go. But I would say some of these shots are right in line with that. And the thing about begotten is some people would say it's a horror film. Some people say it's experimental. And I would say kind of the same thing about this. I mean, there are moments in this that are truly, well, especially the end that are truly horrific. And then there are other times where it almost feels 
surrealistic with the way that things are presented. Because we have the guy taking pot shots at the German and a woman early on in the film, but the real murder happens later on on this road. And the struggle for these guns that goes on takes forever. And it just is excruciating. And I swear it feels like it's playing out in real time as opposed to, you know, movies where it's just like, oh, you don't have that bang, bang, bang kind of thing. Whereas this, it's like, oh, no, we're going to roll around on the ground and struggle. And my friend over here is going to not be able to find the clip for his gun. And just, you know, the guy in the car can't get out. I mean, it just takes forever for this stuff to happen. And then you get those great moments of editing where it's like the one guy, the, the German's holding the machine gun and the one guy's looking at it. And then you get just all these flash cuts. And then you even flash cut in other things like the woman translator, the cows that were walking down the road. All of these things are just like right in there. What a, what an amazing feat of editing, you know, in 1968, where you're just going to have to cut all that stuff by hand. You know, we're not using Adobe Premiere or anything. That scene in particular, I hate to use the word Hitchcockian, but it reminds me of the scene in Torn Curtain where Paul Newman is strangling Gromek and it takes like four minutes to kill him because Hitchcock was trying to say, you watch James Bond movies and the murder is instantaneous. It's not a struggle. But to actually try to kill somebody takes so much out of you. And not only does it take it out of the character, but it takes it out of the audience makes it so uncomfortable and you're watching this life get snuffed out. And even though he's not a good person, the guy who's being killed, you're still watching a human being kill another human being in real time. Yeah. The uh, brutalism with which the violence is presented. And again, just there's no fanfare. There's, I mean, the stylistic approach is in a way to lessen how brutal the violence is, but, for no reason other than because otherwise it would just be two guys on the floor rolling around for five minutes. And who's going to want to watch just that in a movie? You have to do something to make it somewhat more interesting or entertaining at least. But yeah, I mean, having it play out in full, it's so smart. Because again, like you just understand the level at which you're being oppressed and the level with which you have to fight back to not feel oppressed, to get one inch of of land back from these people from these again occupiers you have to you have to tussle on the ground with them for five minutes to choke them out like it's it's not like like you said ryan in a james bond movie and so many other action movies i mean how many people die without any fanfare i'm not saying there needs to be fanfare here but if every kill in every movie were presented the way this one is, I mean, we just watched Dr. No and Sean Connery chokes someone out in that movie. He strangles them with his bare hands. It takes 30 seconds. Like if you actually had to see it, nobody would be like, well, James Bond is a, is a mentally sound human being. Be like, oh my God, this guy's strangling people with, with, with zero and like zero reaction. I mean, again, you see how much it takes out of them here. If you were seeing a character do it and then they didn't react, you'd be like, this person is a actual verifiable sociopath. To have the one character having to carry around the other character for so long in this as they're looking for any sort of shelter afterwards. I mean, that takes up a lot of the movie is just them after the incident, trying to find some place to stay and to have safety and shelter. Yeah, it's literally survival. 
Like that's the only, that's the overriding principle in the entire film is we need to get not just from scene to scene, but just from moment to moment, we need to keep living. To your point about the non-translation of the German, I agree that that's brilliant. It puts you in their shoes. It puts you in the Ukrainian shoes that we can understand each other, but the Germans, we can understand though it feels like they can understand us, but they just respect our language. There's one moment where one of the characters says, you know, Oh, I don't understand. And then the German parrots back don't understand. And it's like, okay, obviously you can speak our language, but you choose not to. When the woman is translating and the German officer's like, you didn't translate correctly. You said that, you know, this would happen, but actually I said, I'm going to kill everyone. If that, if you don't turn over these people, Obviously, he understands what's going on, but he just doesn't want to say it, wants to make her do it, put her in this awkward position. Whatever it is, it feels definitely like a power play. Yeah, to humiliate. Yeah, the Ukrainians weren't viewed very positively by the Nazis. I mean, they didn't like the Russians, but the Ukrainians, look, who's invading Ukraine right now are the Russians. Do you think Ukrainians like Russians? We don't. So... Not speaking for the country at large, but I don't think a country that's being occupied by another country is going to have positive things to say. But the Nazis viewed the Ukrainians even worse than the Russians because the Ukrainians were turncoat Russians, per their beliefs. And the Ukrainians didn't support Stalin. And the Nazis hated Stalin, but they probably they hated the Ukrainians more because they're refusing to even play ball. So, yeah, they're even easier to oppress. So, yeah, it's, it's just this distaste for the Ukrainians that comes through with these Nazi characters. And we know where this is headed. There is not going to be some final third act. Somebody shows up and saves this entire village. We all know where this is headed. I mean, it's pretty obvious from the moment a Nazi is murdered, but it's just the pace with which the movie continues to subject us to everything that's going on. Like you mentioned, Ryan, it's an hour and 16 minutes feels like two and a half hours. Just the the emotional just draining that is going on throughout this movie is just so overwhelming. These two guys just attempting to survive when they know like there's nothing. There's literally nothing you can do. And it's not just like Russia and Ukraine, but you can see parallels to this and what's going on in Gaza right now. If ever there was a time for the world to see this movie right now is that moment. And I really wish that it was like on movie, if it was on Criterion Channel, I wish that this was more proliferated out there because it has lessons to teach us all. It's a movie that is a statement piece. So it's it's hard to say like, well, it's entertaining. and You know what I mean? Like, ultimately, in a lot of ways, like when I think of what my perception was a long time ago of foreign cinema, this is kind of that expectational thing that's being filled. It's a serious movie with a message that has a point. And like you mentioned, Ryan, we're at a time right now where people understanding one another is becoming less and less important to certain people. And there are plenty of us who are like, can we please just figure fucking some middle common anything out anymore? Because again, like we've all said at this point, there is so much going on here that we are not part of currently, but other people are. And to see how emotionally drained we are from watching a fictional version of it, it's 
I can't begin to understand to live in that oppressed culture or have that looming large constantly, like you mentioned, Ryan, at least it was looming and now it's a reality. Man, the timeliness of this movie cannot be overstated. I knew I was going to have a rough time with this just from the first five minutes of the movie, just to see what three people at least get murdered point blank and thrown into a pit right into a ditch. And then immediately the German officer who's assassinated these people just washes, washes his hands casually, you know, cleaning himself of absolution. Okay. This is, I've done this. I don't really care. I'm moving on. It's my job. Who else do I have to kill? And it is, it's a devastating way to open your movie. Like before any kind of table setting has been done, it immediately puts the tone in your mind of, okay, this is going to be the experience that is going to unfold from now on. Yeah. And it never really lets up. Obviously it isn't scenes of violence after violence after violence, but it's the scenes of what happens after the violence and what are the repercussions of the violence and what are these poor people trying to live through every single day? And you were talking, Chris, about the occupation of the Ukraine. I'm trying to remember how many years the Ukraine hasn't been occupied since World War II, because I would consider what the Soviet Union did to be occupation as well. They had a little bit of break afterwards, but I mean, I'm trying to remember there was well before Trump, I'm trying to remember who was the president that was making deals with Ukraine, trying to ensure that there wouldn't be a Russian invasion. And that didn't go so well, now did it? About 24 years after the dissolution of the USSR, uh, because the Ukraine was invaded in 2014, the Crimea was. The Crimea was annexed, you dickheads. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. But yeah, it's about 24 years post the dissolution of the USSR. So yeah, I mean, you know, barely in a, I mean, you know, a middle age, you know, like a middle-aged young adult, as they would say, like a 24-year-old. So that's not a lot. Again, I I don't keep up with Ukrainian cinema. I don't speak Ukrainian. I don't read Cyrillic. Those are things that, unfortunately, I I was a little too young when my grandfather passed away to really gain any of that knowledge, so I don't keep up with Ukrainian cinema. But I will be curious to see the kind of films that are coming out of Ukraine right now and then in the next couple years and the last year to see how their response right now in the, the pop culture is to what's going on versus this response, because this is very much made in response to what was happening in World War II, but also just to speak broadly about fascism and the way people have to exist under fascism. I think it's more than just World War II. I think this was also speaking to the Russian occupation and just using the Germans as an excuse, using them as a stand-in for what the Russians were perceived as doing. So many people don't even know that the Russians were killing millions of Ukrainians by taking the wheat that they were growing away and starving them to death in the millions. Look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about, dear listener, but if you're listening to the projection booth, I would assume you're more learned than most. And But again, like that's a thing that, so many people in the West know nothing about. And it's kind of sort of a little bit, I mean, it's not pounded home here, but they kind of allude to what was going on a little bit. But yeah, I mean, the timelessness of the movie is, I think, one of the big successes. Because like you mentioned, Ryan, this is not something that 
speaks to one specific thing. It could speak to many things because of what it's speaking about broadly. And as you were saying, Chris, about the the cinema that the Ukraine is making right now and as to what that could be, we still haven't even seen how that cinema will be suppressed, just right. like this movie was. Suppressing stuff makes sure nobody gets to see it, which means that that part of the conversation never gets to take place. I mean, there were movies coming out that were having the same conversation, but this movie just it's an hour and 16 minutes of just this. It's very little else. And as far as the world is concerned, if we didn't see it, well, it didn't happen. I like that the Russians, even when they would ban a film, and the same thing happened in Czechoslovakia, when you would ban a movie, they wouldn't destroy all the prints, thank goodness. They would shelve the prints. So that's why we get to see stuff now. I don't know if they were thinking of the future or if they just didn't want to... I don't know, do the paperwork or what it was, why they would keep these movies around, but I sure am glad that they did. I mean, you can see some damage in the the film, especially around the real change marks. And it feels a lot of times like the audio has been replaced or at least sweetened in parts. There are certain sound effects where I'm like, I don't think that that was recorded you know, on the day and date that this was filmed. They probably didn't have a lot of sound equipment. So they probably did a lot of this, you know, the audio and things post sync, but yeah. A lot it, of Foley. Yeah, a lot, a lot of Foley work. And then sometimes the music feels like it was laid in, but I'm like, well, actually this is kind of contemporary to this. So can buy that this wasn't a replacement soundtrack and it fits very well with what they're doing. I mean, you really, during some of the more harrowing scenes and this gets pretty harrowing, you really feel it. I mean, though that, uh, music really helps intensify these scenes. It is at times genuinely unnerving. And there's like a, there's this dissonant kind of atonal quality to it that reminded me a lot of the early notes in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or in The Exorcist, which to piggyback on what we've said previous horror movies, which this I think definitely qualifies at least a societal horror movie, but also the, the sound work, I mean, it's not surprising that they wouldn't shoot with sync sound because this is 1968. This is world cinema, usually because there are people speaking different languages on sets. They usually don't record any sound, but the Foley work is kind of remarkable considering the lack of resources that they had. Well, apparently this has been restored twice, so I don't know if it was once and we think we're good enough and then they do it twice to improve it or if they just went back to the original because you can't say the original negatives i think there was one print of this that was saved and that was an answer print so it's not like they can go back to you know the original camera negatives and restore this so they did a fantastic job with the materials that they had yeah absolutely where did this this suggestion for this film come from this actually came from our friends at classicy Oh, fantastic. They were doing a month of Yugoslavian black wave stuff, and which I like a lot of Yugoslavian cinema. But then I think that um, I can't remember if I suggested or they suggested, hey, why not do a Ukrainian film? And I was just like, yeah, I, I've done some Ukrainian cinema on the show. I think I think it was two years ago. And especially with all the stuff that's going on. Yeah, I guess it was either last year or the year before, because the war has been going on for 
over two years now, correct? Almost, almost two years. Almost two I years. started like started March of last year, twenty twenty two. But it feels like it's been for fucking ever. Yeah. Well, oh I mean, again, it's been it's twenty fourteen. Yeah. It's it's been in my my news briefs for what feels like forever. And it feels like this this nightmare that I'm never going to wake up from. And I'm not even living through it. I'm living vicariously. So I can't even imagine waking up every morning realizing it's going to be more like this. This is my life. And right now, we're not getting that much news compared to what we were even a year ago. Yeah, you know what they say. Ugh, it's not happening anymore. <laughs> I don't know. That's what it kind of feels like. It's 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 very weird. Like for a while there, that's all anybody was talking about, myself included. And then it kind of, I guess everybody forgot, or it wasn't it wasn't in vogue to support Ukraine anymore. Nobody had Ukrainian flags on their Facebook profiles anymore. I mean, hey, whatever. You know, Russia. You want to go back to Afghanistan and do that all over again? Be our guests, I guess. I don't. I don't know. That's the thing. I mean, if you've been around in existence at all, war or occupation has been a thing that somebody's been doing somewhere. And Russia has done it in the 80s, for fuck's sake, with with Afghanistan. So, you know, and the United States was doing it in Afghanistan up until now. So it almost feels like when one leaves, another just enters the kind of the space left over the void is filled so yeah i'm with you ryan it's it's very depressing (laughs) just like this movie to ryan's point about you know soviet and and russian film you know mike we covered on the culture cast three almost four years ago in march of 2020 all those soviet sci-fi movies oh boy and that's what this reminded me of it's like this is just so you know joke from Eurotrip, it's nice you came in the spring because in the winter, it's very depressing. Like, yeah, it's just depressing all the time in Eastern Europe is what it feels like. And be it sci-fi or, you know, societal horror, there's just, there's no getting out from underneath it, apparently. It's what it feels like. Yeah, and I don't get this whole faction of the government that doesn't want to support Ukraine where it's just I guess they want Russia to win is the thing is the support of Russia that much that it's okay to just forget about Ukraine or is it that attitude that we are not world police? I think it's that that's, I mean, it's part of it, but it's less, we're not world police. We want to pick and choose where we police. That's what it is. Again, I'm not saying where, when, or if I agree or disagree with it, but um, you can't pick and choose, unfortunately. And that's the problem. And if you do it once, everybody assumes you're going to keep doing it (laughs) over and over and over again until everybody is constantly asking for help. So, yeah, we want to be world police. We just don't want to have the the all intents and purposes. We do not want to make it look like that's what we're doing. But definitely that's what we're supporting. We're just we're just choosing to be conservative about it, to to use a a euphemism of parlance, as one might say. I'm just thinking of the the scenes of all the women and children and the camera just canning across all of their faces or or just doing it might be a dolly across everybody and just to see all these people that you know by the end of the movie are going to be dead and you get those amazing shots of when they're out in the fields you get those tall i guess that's hay that's up there and you get the guys that are up on the hay and then that's echoed later on when you have the germans 
on this kind of ridge and then all the people below. It's just frightening. You know, so many things about Nazis are either fun and stupid because it's Indiana Jones and you got, you know, pop culture Nazis. But then you have this, which is the brutal reality of what it was, which is these are people that are being asked to kill with no care in the world. They're killing with zero repercussion. And so many of them were doing exactly what they were told. I mean, there are plenty of documented cases of people that were essentially conscripted Nazis. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about these are the dyed in the wool. Rah, rah, let's go kill as many people as we can. Because, I mean, again, we never get the sense that there is any sort of moral quandary to what they're doing. Like Ryan mentioned the first 10 minutes, we have a guy washing his hands, both literally and metaphorically, of the murder of what we can only assume are innocent people. Because throughout the entire movie... More or less everyone is innocent, including the two people that murder the Nazis, because as far as I'm concerned, the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. And there's this this often recited phrase that no war movie is actually anti-war, but I would make the argument this is. This is one of the rare examples where there are no victors. There's there's no there's no catharsis. There's no release. It's like this and come and see are just these palpable reminders of the horrors of it. And that, you know, that we can't rely on the American soldiers to come sweeping in and kill all the Nazis and bang, bang, bang. This is something that is systemic that will be lingering far beyond when this movie is over. And it just washed over me watching this movie. And I I don't think I'll ever shake it. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with an interview with Professor Sam Goff right after these brief messages. Classicy is a film journey to the East, a curated streaming service offering the best of contemporary and classic cinema from Eastern Europe and Asia. Using coupon code Mike50, you can get Classicy membership for just $5.50 a month, giving you the opportunity to sample award-winning films, documentaries, silent masterpieces, classic comedies, and more. You could also get access to the Classicy Journal, exclusive cast and director interviews, video essays, and watch lists. Visit klassiki.online and sign up now to start your adventure in film. Professor Goff, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to talk to you about conscience as well as you and your career. Can you tell me a little bit about you and how you got involved with Russian history? I studied Russian and French, my undergraduate degree uh, in the UK. I went into that not really knowing very much about Russia or the other now post-Soviet states as we're talking about today with Ukraine. And from there, I developed a real fascination with the culture, particularly of early 20th century modernist culture, avant-garde culture, the culture of the first few decades of the revolution, we could say. And then after that, eventually, just a few kind of standard life twists and turns, I ended up doing a PhD in the subject. And then I've worked in and out of academia since then. I've taught um, Russian and Soviet cinema and just Russian and Soviet culture more broadly. I've worked for magazines that kind of publish more broadly on the whole kind of post-socialist regions and more broadly on Eastern Europe 
the Caucasus of Central Asia. And now I am working for Classkey, curating and publicizing the cinema of the whole post-Soviet and post-socialist region. So all of Eastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine, the Baltics, the Balkans, the Caucasus of Central Asia, etc. and so on. So plenty to keep me busy. What initially drew you to learn about and teach about Soviet cinema? I was studying Russian language and culture initially. A lot of people who end up with an interest in Soviet or post-Soviet culture more broadly, including the non-Russian states and cultures, get into it through studying Russian because often that's the only those are the kind those are the undergraduate courses that you can do, and then through that you get exposed to non-Russian cultures, which speaks to a an ongoing issue in terms of the hangover or kind of imperial influence in terms of how we approach the region as a whole. But anyway, that's maybe we can get back to that later. And yes, yeah, so I went in quite blind and it was just it was that was what captivated me the most. It was the initially, like I said, it was the kind of modernist avant-garde. So not just film, but also other visual culture incredibly rich and incredibly multiculturally diverse revolutionary culture of the 1910s, 1920s. And then within that, obviously, Eisenstein, Vertov, Kudovkin, all of the, the big hitters. And then I made my own way into specializing in film over the years that followed. Because I, did, I didn't study film. I, I, I never had any kind of disciplinary training or specialization when it came to it, but I just turned it into my speciality, shall we say, over a period of time. Can you tell me a little bit about Ukrainian cinema and what that was like? Was that as old as Russian cinema? That's a complicated question. It's a very old tradition. The problem is that the kind of historiography, if that's the right word, of cinema from across the whole of the what would become the Soviet region experiences this massive rupture after the revolution. And then there is a, there's several years of violent warfare across that whole region as different kind of forces try and fill the, the vacuum left by the collapse of the Russian empire. So it can be hard to speak in terms of a continual, continuous history over the period, but what we now call Ukraine, what is now the Ukrainian state. That was situated in this kind of crossroads between different empires, very multicultural regions. So it was definitely exposed to the kind of cultural currents that brought new inventions like cinema into the region. So cinema was in, in Russia in the 1890s and it was definitely in Ukraine from the same time. So the cinema history of Ukraine is as long, but like all of the kind of cultural histories in the region, it's it can be complicated to draw out very straight lines, if that makes sense, from one point to another. What can you tell me about Volodymyr Denishenko and Conscious? Conscious is an important film, a fantastic film, very difficult film, which, I, as I'm sure you agree, Denishenko's career was curtailed by political repression, to put it bluntly. He had not even finished his studies in the what was then called the Theatre Institute in Kiev, 
when he was arrested in 1948 and imprisoned for five years in, in a prison camp. The charge against him was uh, bourgeois nationalism, that should be in kind of air quotes for listeners, which was a kind of standard charge of the time that was leveled against people who it was thought had, whose, whose sympathies were too local and nationalistic as opposed to pan-Soviet. So this is maybe a little too complicated to get into the details, but basically throughout the Soviet period, across all the different Soviet republics, there is this tension between nationalism and national culture and Soviet identity, transnational pan-Soviet identity. And it's a kind of constant back and forth. Often it's a case of like direct suppression, repression, and censorship. Sometimes it's more a question of mediation. But basically, at different points, particularly late Stalinist period at the end of the 40s, you could really get in a lot of trouble for expressing, holding views, expressing views in your art that could be too readily associated with nationalist, that is, in this instance, Ukrainian identity rather than some kind of pan-Soviet identity. Anyway, he was in prison for five years and he was liberated and rehabilitated after Stalin died in 1953. So then he returns to his studies. He does a stint in Moscow where he studies under Alexander uh, Dovzhenko, who is the kind of godfather of Ukrainian cinema. He is the director after whom the National Studio in Kiev is still named. And then he established himself as a screenwriter and a director and a, a lecturer, a teacher, importantly, at the Dovzhenko Studios in Kiev by the end of the 50s. So when it, in terms of conscience, Denisenko was obviously even more painfully aware than most of the dangers involved in pushing the envelope in terms of the authorities. And so when it came to shooting this, this film, he took extra care to, to not provoke anyone. He technically shot it as a student diploma project in an attempt to avoid too much scrutiny from too much oversight from the censors, but that was to no avail and it was banned anyway. So it wasn't actually released in Ukraine until the 1990s. And then in very poor condition, it's been restored, I think, twice now by the Dovzhenko studio. In the meantime, the version we have now, still a little rough, but much closer to the original vision. The script by a writer called Vesel Zimliak was a kind of quasi-autobiographical account of Vesel Zimliak's experiences in Nazi-occupied rural Ukraine during the Second World War. And it is precisely in its treatment of this question of occupation, resistance, collaboration, these kind of very fraught questions. This is precisely the reason why it offended the Soviet census. But we can possibly get into that in more detail if you're interested. I'm a big fan of Czechoslovakian cinema, and I know that for a lot of that, they'll use Nazis and use World War II as a way to critique the communists, though they're critiquing, quote unquote, the, the Nazis and decrying them, vilifying them. Is that kind of the same thing that we're doing here with the way that we're using 
the Germans versus the occupying force that's actually inside of Ukraine? That's the, the answer to that question probably comes down to who you're asking. I can't, I wouldn't want to speak for any kind of Ukrainians, let alone kind of Ukrainian cinema expert. My personal take on the film, if that's the right word, would be that it's about that very specific experience of occupation. It's a philosophical take on the nature of occupation more than it is an attempt to provide any kind of fine grain detail about the experience of Nazi occupation. But there is certainly a historical narrative, which is very prevalent today for obvious reasons, that sees a lot of continuities between Nazi occupation and what people would call kind of occupation by the Soviets, whether occupation is the right word for um, the kind of Soviet relationship to Ukraine, obviously a very kind of controversial question. But it is interesting that in this film, there is no representative of what we might call the kind of Soviet state, right? So usually in kind of what mainstream or kind of non-censored Soviet Second World War films, especially from, yeah, you know, especially from this period, what you have is this uh, appeal to this kind of the cause of the Soviet Union. And there'll be figures representative of, maybe there'll be figures of different ethnicities who will identify it as being part of the Red Army or part of the cause, the resistance against the Nazis. Sometimes there'll be a figure representing you know, the party itself provides this kind of ideological rationalizing oversight. And I think what's really telling and fascinating about conscience is that's absent. And it's much more, it's almost more abstract in that sense. It's much more this kind of philosophical take on the experience of the emotional experience of the hopelessness, basically, of occupation. It's very different from a film like The Ascent, by Larissa Shapiko, another very famous Soviet film about a Nazi occupation, another brilliant film, but Shapiko's film is very much about the partisan cause and it views collaboration as this kind of spiritual death. Whereas Denisenko has frankly, a more kind of nuanced understanding of what exactly it means to be a collaborator or a partisan or to exist in resistance to the occupation. So yeah, that would be my answer. But like I say, a lot of these questions are obviously very fraught to this day. 1968 was such a pivotal year. There were student protests all over the place. There was political upheaval, riots. What was happening in the Soviet Union and particularly Ukraine at this time? By the late 60s, the Soviet Union broadly had had its a period of liberalization had been and gone. So after Stalin's death in 1953, you get what's called the thaw in a lot of in a lot of Soviet culture, which is this kind of like period of liberalization, relative licentiousness, a kind of reconsideration of the past, a kind of reimagination of what the Soviet future might look like, etc. and so on. But by the time that Khrushchev is ousted and, and et cetera and so on after the Cuban Missile Crisis. By the mid to late 60s, that's basically done. 
in terms of that kind of liberalization period. And of course, in, in 1968, the Soviet Union put down the Prague Spring. The Soviet Union was not particularly symbolic of that period of kind of uprising across Europe that you mentioned. In Ukraine, and in particular in Ukrainian cinema, the period is more vibrant because this is really the period that we associate with what's called Ukrainian poetic cinema. So this is a kind of loose movement that really emerges after the release in 1965 of Sergei Parajanov's film Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, which people may be familiar with. Fantastic film. And then it's Sergei Parajanov was not actually Ukrainian. He was Armenian, but he was living and working in Ukraine at the time. And Parajanov's film turned to native Ukrainian folklore, in this case, the traditions and, and folk tales of an ethnic minority called the Hutzels, who live in the mountains part of Ukraine. And it turned to that and combined it with kind of modernist experimental techniques to create this new form of Ukrainian national culture on screen, we could say. And Parajanov's film and the res response to it inspired a lot of younger Ukrainian directors, people like Boris Ivchenko, Yuri Ilya, Vladimir Denisenko himself. And so at the end of the 60s, you're starting to get this wave of kind of folklore-inspired, modernist, kind of Ukrainian new wave, if you like that is very focused on this idea of Ukrainian national identity and culture and which locates it in this kind of rural past. Um, and this is part of a broader movement at the end of the 60s towards a kind of reassertion of Ukrainian national culture and national identity on the part of intellectuals within Soviet Ukraine. So Ukraine is going through we might say a more exciting period than say Russia is at this, by the end of the sixties. And enlarged by that is due to this idea that there, they should try and find a kind of Ukrainian specific kind of artistic language and cinema is a great example of. Well, speaking of language, one thing I really picked up on while I was watching the movie again was the difference between the German language and then the language that everybody else is speaking. Is that is it Russian or is there a Ukrainian, Ukrainian dialect? Okay. No, Ukrainian is a language. They are speaking Ukrainian. And that's not unusual. It's not the case that no films would be shot in Ukrainian. Films would be, films would often be shot in Russian. Russian is the lingua franca of the Soviet Union, but often films were shot in Ukrainian and they could be dubbed into Russian for Soviet Union wide release, if you like. Films are often shot in the language of the countries they were made into Ukrainian, Latvian, Georgian, et cetera, and so on, and then dubbed for release elsewhere in the Soviet Union. But yeah, in this film, they are speaking Ukrainian. But you're right that the question of language is, is a big part of its treatment of the idea of occupation in the first place through the figure of the woman who is forced to act as a translator for the Nazis. And I like that one of the Nazis tells her, you didn't translate me correctly, that I said this and you said something else. I said that we would kill everyone. And you said that 
something much less harsh. Yeah, that's a, it's a brilliant, chilling moment. It's an upsetting film. I don't know what to say. Obviously, absolutely worth people's time. Oh yeah, upsetting from the very first scene. <laughs> it it oh, doesn't yeah. get any easier as you're watching it. There's no reprieve. No, and the ending is whatever the antonym for reprieve is. That's what the ending is. Um, no spoilers. You said that this film was banned, and I'm curious if you know anything about how that happened. It just sounds like it didn't even ever come out until the 90s. And when the the 90s happened after Perestroika and Glasnost and all this, how many movies were re-released at that time? How many things had been censored so much that they weren't even available for 30 years? 20 years, I guess that is. Well, I mean, a lot. I wouldn't have the... Obviously, don't have any exact numbers. So, what often happened was that a film would be completed and then just denied a release, for, which is what happened in this instance. Happened in a lot of instances, which is why we are able to now watch it now, right? Because they shelved it. the The expression is it was um, made for the shelf. It was the kind of idiomatic expression, which speaks to how complicated and back and forth the relationship between filmmakers and censors was. I think people presume that censorship was a very strict kind of top-down centralized process. And at different times, it, it was more like that, but, but it was actually much more like complicated mediation and that kind of outside influence would come in throughout the filmmaking process. Or the way that studios work now, like in America, for instance. You're constantly getting notes from the studios, notes from producers and so on, rewrites, recasts, etc. So it happened a lot that, uh, that films were completed and then shelved, which is good in a sense because it means we get to watch them now. In terms of it coming to light in the 90s, so there was a lot of films actually came to light at the end of the 80s during Perestroika. A lot of films, there was a something called a, a reconciliation committee established in the kind of central cinematographers union based in Moscow under the auspices of this kind of cultural perestroika that was a, basically a committee that went through and tried to get previously shelved films unshelved. And so at the end of the eighties, there was this huge flood of films that were unshelved. And yeah, that list is as long as my arm. And then since then, it's been a question of, okay, so taking it off the shelf is one thing. Does it need restoration? Who owns the, who's got the negative? Where are the prints? Can we get it into cinemas? Because you can't just release 40 years worth of lost, forgotten heritage onto screens all at once. So since then, things, it's obviously been a, a piecemeal process to get things back into public consciousness. But yeah, that's been happening since the 80s. And it, one of the reasons why it's so complicated is that the Soviet Central kind of film archive, Gosfilmafond, is based in Russia outside Moscow. And they had basically everyone's material from all of the former Soviet republics. And the process of newly independent national, national archives trying to get their materials, what they see as their materials back from, from Moscow since 1991 has been up and down, obviously now very much on the down, but that's a, that's a whole other history of kind of film 
preservation. When did you first see this one? I actually only saw this one last year when we brought it onto Classicy. Like I say, it's uh, under. I'm not an expert in Ukrainian cinema by any means, uh, but we were consciously making an effort to expand our Ukrainian collection, and we were bringing on a number of films from this movement, Ukrainian poetic cinema. And yeah, I wanted. I was aware of this film. I hadn't seen it, so. When we got out of it, I watched it then, and it was really, like I say, it it fits. It's so interesting how you can see it fits within this kind of very long tradition of partisan films within Soviet cinema history, but it's also so specifically Ukrainian. It's part of this Ukrainian moment, this Ukrainian movement, and it's also just completely singular even within that. It's not really a lot of other Ukrainian poetic cinema. So yeah, it's a recent discovery for me totally worth the wait what other ukrainian films have you seen that have made an impact on you i really came to soviet culture through the early years the kind of 20s and 30s and alexander devchenko who i I mentioned before uh I, i think i described him as the godfather of ukrainian cinema he was the kind of great master of ukrainian silent film and he was one of the greatest kind of silent filmmakers, not just in the Soviet Union, but I think anywhere in the world. A film like Earth from 1930, that is just, yeah, that's an intensely lyrical, extreme propagandistic, but with a kind of animistic spirit. It's a super interesting example of the ways in which incredibly inventive and vivid artistry in that kind of 20s, 30s period could be conjoined to a kind of propagandistic agenda. Although I don't hugely like the word propaganda, even though I'm using it myself because I think it's a bit reductive. But yeah, so that that's a film about the collectivization of Ukrainian agriculture, which doesn't sound very thrilling, but it's, it's really indelible the images in that one. So yeah, all of the Dovshenko films from the end of the 20s and the early 30s, Aerograd, Arsenal, Ivan. And I did also mention earlier in passing Ziga Vertov, so people might be aware of Man with a Movie Camera, Ziga Vertov's classic avant-garde documentary from 1929. Vertov's brother, who is the titular Man with a Movie Camera, he was Vertov's cinematographer. After Man with the Movie Camera, they split, and his brother Michal Kalfner was Vertov's birth name. Vertov was an, a non diplume. Kalfman went to Kiev and he made an amazing kind of essayistic documentary called In Spring in, in I think, 1929, which is an, another kind of fantastic experimental silent film. So there's two silent films for you, at least In Spring by Kalfman and, and Earth by Dozhenko. How did you get involved with Classicy and what do you do for them? So I was teaching film language culture at Cambridge and they had initially launched in, I think, well, let me get my dates right, February 2021. It was a response to the pandemic. They was initially launched under the kind of auspices of this charity that restored and promoted Russian and Soviet cinema. 
And because of the ongoing effects of pandemic cancelling their ability to kind of screen films in person, the founder of that charity, Justine Waddell, had, had launched this streaming platform. And I got in touch and said, this is great. This is my bag. Can I help? And so I started, started with, working with them like that. My, my official title is editorial director. I basically work with Justine to program films for the platform. So it's a curatorial role. We have a kind of permanent library. It's, I think at this point it's 110 films. And then we also have a kind of a rolling weekly pick of the week, which uh, those are often more kind of contemporary films, pick of the week films. And the library is more kind of classic cinema. So there's a lot of curation to do, um, help run our partnerships with various festivals and celebrities. I apparently I go on podcasts and ramble on. And also we run a journal, so a kind of online publication where we try and complement. We've always tried to have a, this kind of multimedia complementary approach to our programming. So if we're in, putting a film on the platform, let's try and interview the director, even if it's a film from the 60s and they're 90 and don't want to talk about it anymore, which has happened before. So yeah, let's have an interview with the filmmaker. Let's have an introduction to the movement at this. Okay, so we've got this collection of Ukrainian poetic cinema. Let's have an introduction to what that is, a watch list. For readers, so we we try and provide more insight into cinema from the region through that. So I commission and edit and write that as well. So yeah, that's, that's me. Are you still teaching at Cambridge at the same time? I was doing two jobs for a while, but now I'm just working with my key. I am writing a book based on my academic research. No, I'm not teaching. Thank you so much, Professor Goff, for taking the time to talk to me today. I no, really appreciate you, this. Thank you for your interest and thanks for, for showcasing a film like Conscience. I think it's no better time and place to be talking about this stuff. So thank you. We are back and we are talking about conscience. You mentioned come and see earlier, Ryan, that really is the only film that I can think of. That's anywhere near this, as far as the brutality. Um, I can't really think of any other war movies that are nearly as brutal as this. I was going back and watching Turner classic movies and kind of catching up on the veterans day uh, celebration that they had, which is all war movies for 24 hours. And I rewatched, Sam Fuller's The Steel Helmet. And that movie ends so hopelessly that I didn't remember how just destroying the end of that movie is. And it really it left me with a very similar impression to watching this, where it's like the movie's over, but it's going to linger and it's going to fester. And that that festering is just going to it's going to atrophy and just 
shit is going to go purple because of this. It was, it was something I had watched on the suggestion of someone else, Spencer Parsons, when we talked about A Prayer for the Dying. And I'm trying to remember the name, but it was on the BBC. And it was about the Troubles, which A Prayer for the Dying is also about. Uh, and it's essentially just people being murdered on the moors. Can't for the life of me remember the name of it, but it was on the BBC. And it was kind of like a found footage horror movie. And there was this brute. Again, I watched it on YouTube. And if I could remember the name of it, I would. It wasn't Elephant, was it? I guess. Am I, well, I'm, I'm not BBC, sure. Right? I'm just guessing. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was on, was not released. That was just a, because again, I watched it because Spencer suggested it. And then, you know, like anything else, just didn't think I would ever have a, a, a reason to revisit it. But yeah, I guess it was, it must've been elephant. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that, that is similar to this in my mind in terms of just like, it's brutal where it's going it's pretty obvious from the start there is very little in terms of like well we're not going to show you what we didn't say like we told you this is what it's going to be you see that this is what it's going to be there is no moment where we turn away from it i mean you've mentioned it already ryan like they tell you in the first five minutes of this movie what's going to happen you see murder of people by nazis and then you see the nazis say we're going to kill everybody if you don't do what we say and the nazis do it Elephant has that same thing. It's just like, yeah, we're just going to keep killing people because that's what's going on. And we just need to bring light to the fact that these are the things that are happening. I'm not a war movie guy. So that's why my answer is not a, a war movie. We tend to not watch war movies for a number of reasons. Just they don't scratch an itch for me in any stretch of the imagination. And to be fair, most of them end the same way. Everybody dies. So, you know, fun. Another one that really sticks with me is Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows, which is an incredibly personal movie for him, because even though he did like very cool caper movies and very much con man movies and and criminal movies with a, a sense of precision, and he was all about the process of it. But I mean, like he during World War II was in the French resistance, fighting the Gestapo and fighting the Nazis tooth and nail. And that movie in particular it feels like everything is cyclical. Like no matter how many people you take off the rung, there are going to be five more people that pop up. And even when the war is over and your enemy has been vanquished, there will be more enemies. That is just how life works. Some of the things in here where they have, you know, they take some of the, the crowd and they have them run across and put their hands up against this building. And you're just like, okay, are they going to shoot all these people in the back or what's going to happen? It reminded me a lot of Transport from Paradise, the Czech movie, which that movie also reminds me of um, Distant Journey, which was another concentration camp movie. And I think those for me are the most brutal, especially when it is people being taken from their homes and displaced and put onto these trains and being sent someplace where you know they're not going to survive. That part of the journey to me is always the most brutal where you know what's going to happen. And maybe some of the people know what's going to happen, but not everybody does. And you just get to see the destruction of hope and individuality and personal liberty and everyone just being herded like the cattle that we saw earlier being thrown onto these transports and being taken to their doom. Yeah. Thrust into the void. You know, I know people love true crime and I have a podcast where we talk about true crime, but in a lot of ways for me, 
I sit here and I look at something like this and I go like, if you're getting your jollies about how much you want to like see the brutality of people being like murdered just outright, the evil of the human soul, I'm not going to go watch Dahmer, the Jeffrey Dahmer monster story, because that's just mythologizes it. This is literally what this is. This is what evil looks like. It doesn't give a shit. If you sit and cry on your knees, that gun is going up to your temple and they're going to pull the trigger. Doesn't matter. And if it were presented this way all the time, I think people would have a much different reaction to it, which again, to your point, Ryan, it's like these kinds of things, this movie specifically is important for more people to see, because again, there's nothing in the third act that's going to change anything. You can't change the reality of the situation. And no matter how many times we put our head in the sand or we look the other way, or we somehow pretend that's not what's what happening. That is what is happening. And as will continue to happen as people continue to look the other way. Here I was thinking two, three months ago, oh, well, this movie is so important to see in 2023. And then to your point, Ryan, as far as the conflict that's happening over in Israel and the Gaza Strip, this makes it even more of a thing that we need to see in 2023. Something else that is really you know, crystallizing this brutality as well. Trying to think, Chris, you know, you mentioned as far as, you know, the occupation and things like that. I'm trying to think of when in my life have we not had war? You know, I was born during the Vietnam War, and it's just been conflict after conflict after conflict since then. I can't think of a time of peace in my life. A couple years, maybe. But even then, like, again, like. Ukraine has been invaded since 2014. We were in the Middle East since 2002. Russia was in Afghanistan in the 80s. You know, I mean, it's just like, for fuck's sake, like, for fuck's sake, at some point, what, like, are there just going to be places that people stop wanting to invade? Or it's just going to be the same fucking places over and over and over again somehow maybe three months from now we'll be we'll be commiserating over the fact that now china has invaded taiwan and now the movie's even more important and it's like jesus christ like it's yeah you're right like it's to say the last couple years have been exhausting is an understatement and there is no end in sight for anything for anyone for any of us about anything like you said ryan your feed has had the ukrainian stuff on it for the last year and a half Probably will continue, unfortunately, for the foreseeable future. And now there's just more things one could add if they want to continue to be thoroughly and constantly bummed out by the world and the decisions other people make about how to conduct themselves. The other shoe will continue to drop in perpetuity. China has been brutalizing the Uyghurs for at least six years now, and nobody talks about that. Who? It's what? rarely do what now? Do you know what I'm talking about? I no? do know what you're talking okay, about, but I'm just, I'm just pretending to be everybody else because you say Uyghurs and people go, what? Ethnic uh, Muslims uh, in, in China, I'm saying this for other people, not for you, Chris, are being thrown into, into camps, forced labor. It's forced Germany sterilization. Yeah. yeah. But they get to control the narrative. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's why this can keep going because they are the authors of their story. And if anybody tries to intercede, it's like, no, that's not happening. Haven't you checked the internet? That's that's not happening. Well, well, you own the internet. That's why it's not out there. I don't know if you guys know this, but John Cena said Taiwan's not a country and he apologized for it. 
I'll never forget that. Like as much as I maybe like him as an actor, it's like that idea of like, now we can take the oppression of people and, and pop cultureize it and mainstream it and then put people on the spot to have to apologize for speaking a reality that exists, that is not controlled by some sort of media entity, be it the state or a conglomerate of its own. Like, I don't know. It's, Subjectivity and objectivity are fucking dead, and it's really hard to exist in a post-truth society, and I don't think it's just the last 10 years. I think if you ask someone much more learned than me, they would say it's the last 30 or 40 years, probably, have been a post-truth society. So many of us are just now growing up and realizing and internalizing the things that so many other people have seen forever. Cause again, the three of us are all different ages and Mike, like you said, you were born during the Vietnam war. You lived through Reaganomics. I only heard about it on the internet and in books that were again, shockingly nonpartisan, <laughs> thankfully. So, yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to the John Cena thing, I would say that the biggest motiva- motivating factor behind that is, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit of lucre, filthy lucre, because it's, you know, don't don't say that Hong Kong is a different place. Don't say that Taiwan is a different place. Don't say that Nepal is a different place. They all are owned by China. And if you disagree with that, then we will not play your movie. We will not host your event. We will whatever it is, but to damage you economically. You know, I, I remember, I think it was the Katy Perry, somebody like wore like a, a Taiwan t-shirt years ago. And then she was just banned from ever performing in China. So there goes that revenue stream. Yeah. And to, to piggyback on, on John Cena, like, wasn't he just in a Chinese movie with like Jackie Chan? Yes. Sure was. He sure was. He sh- man. And it looked real good too. It looked like it was produced by the Chinese government in a way that only those movies do. Like, I don't know how else to describe it, but I will see movies advertised sometimes. And all I can think is somehow the Chinese government is funding this movie. And I can't tell you how I know that it's just the way it looks, looks overly positively Chinese. And again, I have zero feelings towards china at all other than don't fucking oppress people for fuck's sake jesus it's not not that hard i guess it is but i guess it's i guess it isn't like i don't know never been given the opportunity to oppress someone so i don't know what it's like to not have the willpower to not do it i would like to believe like I'm sure both of you would, if given the opportunity, I would say fuck no. But there are clearly so many people that are just one little push is all it takes. And then you have plenty of people signing up to be Nazis. And then, you know, they're shooting people, whether or not they thought they were going to be doing that is beyond the point, but they're there and they did it. So there you go. Well, I'm sorry, Chris, but this podcast is destined to take over the world. So soon I will have that power and I will go mad (laughs) with it. Mad, I tell you. Well, you know what they say about serving at the right hand of the devil. <laughs> yeah, it's I'll rad. It. That's what they're saying, right? Yeah, man. It's <laughs> fucking yeah. rich, man. Yeah. <laughs> See, he's killing everybody else. I want to thank my co-hosts, Chris and Ryan. Thank you so much for taking in this movie, guys. I know it wasn't easy, but I do appreciate you doing it. And I do appreciate this conversation. So, Chris, what have you been working on lately, sir? Um, just, you know. Posting podcasts and audio nonsense over at weirdingwaymedia.com where everything is shockingly anti-China and anti-Russia. Just kidding. It's fucking not. It's just podcasts to entertain yourself in these horrifying times. 
weirdingwaymedia.com is where you can go to distract yourself as we continue to plummet into the oblivion. And Ryan, what is happening in your world, sir? I have two podcasts. The first is an audio commentary podcast. I call it the only commentary podcast that matters because as far as I know, it's the only one. And that is One Track Mind, where we analyze film through the prism of audio commentaries every week. Uh, Mike has been on the show. We discussed the disc for Fight Club. And Chris, you are invited anytime you want. I would love to have you on the show. And Mike, we got to get you back on the show as well. I love it. The question is, have you ever covered Armageddon? Yes, that's the pilot episode. Okay, cool. That's what I that's what I thought. Yeah, because I mean, that's like holy grail. That's one of those like holy grail commentary. <laughs> it's a two and a half hour self-own from Michael Bay, just laying everything bare and like, you know what? You think I'm a disgusting pig? Well, guess what? I am. Look, look at me wallow. Look at but me look, wallow. I have money. So that's that's good, right? And then. I also have another podcast, a fake movie court called Reels of Justice, where we have a prosecutor, a defender, a judge, and a jury, and we try to determine if a movie is guilty of being a bad movie. And you can find both of those podcasts wherever you're listening to this. You can find me on X. I'm never going to get used to saying that. I'm just going to keep saying Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at one track mind Pod, on Instagram at one, that is the numeral one track mind podcast. And One Track Mind on Blue Sky. And you can find Reels of Justice at Reels of Justice on Twitter and Instagram. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. Like Chris said, they are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Mm-hmm.